when Jesus talked about to his disciples that he wanted um, the little children to come to him and that we could have faith like little children, uh, I, I know, um, just looking around, even right now as I'm looking at you, uh, many of you know so much more than I know and are so much more mature than I am and have some of you have, have greater degrees than I have and have gone to seminary and learned many, many things and, and could teach um, this or preach this so much better than I could. But you didn't volunteer, and um, and so here I am. And so pretend like I'm a child. You don't have to pretend for some of you. You already do that. Pretend like I'm a child, and I'm teaching you something this morning uh, from that perspective. When Peter wrote, wrote this letter, I feel like in desperation to the um, to the exiles. I want to remind you again of the fiery trials that they are experiencing. Next week we'll get into submission to earthly authorities. Uh, you know, giving honor to the emperor, who the emperor at this time was murdering Christians, burning them. And so when Peter's talking about a fiery trial, uh, he's writing a letter in desperation telling the believers not to give up. Don't lose hope. Believe in the resurrection. Believe in Jesus. Continue to grow in that faith that you have in him. But also remain in holiness. Remain in purity. Don't be tainted by the world, by the world's teaching or by the world's persuasion. Don't be tainted by sin that, um, that is everywhere. But remind yourselves that you've been saved from that. And so continue to walk in, in holiness. So when we get to verse 1 of chapter 2, we have this in mind. That Peter is writing in desperation to the believers not to give up. If you were real this morning, was there a moment this past week where you felt as if you were going to give up on Jesus? Like, you know, without a shadow of a doubt, maybe you have trusted wholeheartedly in his death and his resurrection. You, you trust in that. But there were moments this past week where you wondered, where you had doubts, where you wrestled with. You look at the, the world around us and you think, is this really the way it's supposed to be? Is Christ really in control? It sure seems like he might be, he might be out of control. Or maybe you didn't receive the wants that you want, and so with that you began to uh, question the Lord. I thought you were going to give me the desires of my heart. That's what your word says. And you're not giving those to me. I thought you had my best interest in mind. I thought you promised good to all those who follow you. I mean, those things, and you wrestle with that, and so you have to begin preaching, is this really, really worth it? I don't know of any story. I'm looking again at your faces this morning, and I don't recall any text messages or prayer or, uh, or uh, phone calls from you this week saying that you were tested with fire this week, that you were almost burned at the stake. I don't remember any of that. So I doubt that that happened, but I know through life's broken circumstances that many of us still wrestle, still are persecuted in a sense. Maybe not by rocks, maybe not by fire, but maybe by words, maybe by your own doubt, maybe by your own thorn in your flesh, a wrestling with, is Christ really, really in control? And so I feel like this is why last week, and I did a terrible job of this, by the way, when Peter is writing to the church saying, you are living stones being built up together, this is the purpose. When he talks about this living stones or this spiritual house of God, the Greek word is oikos, and it really means a family. Peter's writing saying, you, like the living stone Jesus who is rejected, you are being built up as a family so that you can continue on 
persevering, not giving up on the living hope that we have in Jesus. It's the purpose of the church. One commentator says, The beauty of this new and living temple made of people should no longer be expensive gold or precious jewels, but the imperishable beauty of holiness and faith in Christian lives, qualities with, which uh, much more effectively reflect the glory of God. So we as living stones being built up together as a family, spurring one another along towards faith and good works, as the author of Hebrews says, we're, we're urging one another to continue on. And when we say things like don't give up, we're, we're not just saying uh, press on and show people how much strength that you have. Press on and don't give up just so that you can prove like you are strong. But the pressing on and the and the continuing, the perseverance, is to give glory to the living hope that we have in Jesus. So that the church, as a family, being built up together as the temple of the Lord, are making known the presence of the Lord to the world who's in desperate need of the Lord. So we, together, as a house, being built up together as living stones, rejected almost like our, our true living stone, Jesus, we're being built up together to, to put on display the majesty of the Lord, to put on display the presence of the Lord. When we gather together, whether it be in this building, or in someone's home, or at a coffee shop, or at a football field, when we gather together as the church, not as the building, but as the church, we are putting on display the presence of the Lord. Now, what is a temple for? Again, the temple is for the presence of the living God. So he's putting us together as a family of living stones so that the presence of the living God may be made known to the world. This is why it's extremely difficult in places like Southeast Asia, where the church of Christ, the church belonging to God, the church belonging bought by Jesus Christ, where it's not, it's not being shown. The presence of God is not being shown there. An unreached people group. This is why the glory of God should be ma- being made known every second in a place like Lovington. Because just of the people that are here this morning gather together to make the presence of, of God, make the presence of God known. So I want you to grab, um, I think Gerald's going to help pass this out. I want to look at this together and I printed it for you uh, separately. We're not taking scripture out of context or out of the Bible. We're not removing this, but Gerald's going to pass out and maybe somebody can help him pass out a little page. That's just these first 12 verses and you can grab your crayon or your pen or your marker. We're going to do some mark marking today on your sheet there so you can have an idea of how all these things kind of tie together within 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Because I think there are some heavy things in here that you may get confused with. So I'm going to give you a moment to get that, that piece of paper. concerned about um, Hebrews 13, 17. The author of Hebrews writes, writes this. Um, he talks about the shepherds or the pastors or the leaders, the overseers within the church, and how they are going to give an account for um, those within the church souls. And so with that, I'm, I'm burdened weekly with just um, 
really trying to give you something to eat as a cook, in a sense, and that you actually taste and see that the Lord is good, and that you um, that you put that into uh, really into practice. And by practice, what I mean is submission to the lordship of Jesus and obedience to Him. So First Peter, and I, what I've done here is I've just kind of I've done we've done this before, but highlighted some things by color. And if you're colorblind, I'm sorry. I'll get somebody to help you with this, but um, highlighted some things by color to kind of put these things together um, so that you might see uh, some themes, some common themes within these first twelve verses, and hopefully help you to understand them better. So what I'm going to do is is uh, break down a few of these verses for us. We're gonna we're gonna study all these together and then break down the ones that we have not studied yet. So put away all malice and all deceit. And hypocrisy and envy and slander, and like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. So what's happening if you're drinking the pure spiritual milk? You're growing up, you're maturing, you're growing up into the salvation that Christ has provided for us. So what are we putting away? We're putting away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. These are wages of, uh, these are fruits of wrath or fruits of a sinful nature. These are uh, where um, Paul talks about the wages of sin being death. The wages of malice is death. The wages of deceit is death. The wages of hypocrisy is death. The, The wages of envy is death. The wages of slander is death. So the payment, if you remain in these sins, is what? Death. So Peter is begging, imploring, put away these things. And instead, if you've been clothed with the righteousness of Jesus, put on Jesus. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Psalm 34 is what we're talking about here. And as you come to him, so you've put away sin through Jesus, you've removed this, you're no longer putting it back on, the clothes of sin and wrath and death. And as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. We're going to focus in on this holy priesthood business. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We cannot offer anything to God on our own. Since rebellion happened, there has always been someone that needed to mediate for us, between us and God, to offer pure, holy sacrifices for us. In the Old Testament days, those were the priests, and they had all these rituals. You can read this in Leviticus chapter 21. We'll get to this in a second. They had all these things that they had to do so that they could present a holy and acceptable sacrifice to God. So what do you have to do this morning in your singing of praises to God? If he's going to hear that, what do you have to do in order for the Lord to hear that? Is there something, some phrase that you can say that will help you help the Lord hear your worship? Is there some kind of ointment or essential oil or hand sanitizer that you can place upon you that will help you to be uh, holy and pure so that the sacrifices that you make will be acceptable to God? Or is there something much simpler? Has someone already completed all of that? Okay. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The only way that these, that our sacrifices are going to be acceptable to God is through Jesus. 
So when Paul says in Romans 12.1, we're going to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, how will our bodies be acceptable to God? Only through Jesus, only through his holiness, only through his purity. If we're going to give a gift to enable the spread of the gospel to the nations, how is that going to happen? Can anyone just give a gift and it be acceptable to God? No, it has to be through Jesus. If we're going to sing praises, Hebrews 13, 15, if we're going to sing praises to the Lord and worship in honor of him, how will those praises be acceptable to God on your own? It has to go through it has to go through Jesus. Even sharing with one another, sharing our goods, sharing our resources with one another. If we're doing that on our own motives, our own selfishness or whatever, for our own glory, those things will not be acceptable to God because they're not through Jesus. Instead, they're through and through they're through self. Peter is saying, instead of offering malice, offer love. Instead of offering hypocrisy, offer authenticity. Instead of offering slander, offer encouragement. But you can do that without Jesus. So as believers of Jesus who are submitting to the Lordship of Christ, we do these things through Christ. We do these things through Christ. Verse 6, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Okay, here's, so here's this moment. Peter is telling the, the followers of Jesus, their eyes now, their thoughts now, their hearts are, are getting in tune with the thought of the temple. The stone, the brick and mortar temple in Jerusalem, in Zion. And they're thinking about this, okay? And who is the cornerstone? Who is the foundational piece to this new temple? Well, the foundational piece is Jesus. And if you reject Jesus, what is coming your way? What is, to borrow a term here from verse 8, what is your destiny if you reject the cornerstone? What is your destiny if you remain in sin? What is coming your way? What will be your payment for remaining in sin? For it stands in Scripture, verse 6, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Peter is writing this, but John echoes it when he wrote the Gospel of John chapter 3, when he records the words of Jesus. When Jesus says, Believe in me, believe on me, and you will be saved. If you don't believe on me, expect the wrath of God. For it stands. Uh, verse 7, So the honor is for you who believe. Who will be honored? Those who believe, not those who Reject, But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stumbling block, a rock of, def- a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. Any of you wrestle with this this week? Any of you wrestle with why there's a comma after disobey the word? Here we are in this series, and that's a comma on the screen. Hope is always followed by a comma. But in this particular sentence, it seems as if, if you were to really dig down deep, there's not a lot of hope after as they were destined to do. There's a lot of thought here, a lot of wrestling that goes. Is the Lord the one doing this? Did the Lord predestine their leading to wrath, to God's wrath, to their eternal separation from God. Why is death and eternal suffering their destiny? In our Western culture, in our world, we have been taught, and we wrestle with this daily, 
that there's good in everyone. Surely we can find good in everyone. Well, what does the Bible say about that? What does the gospel say about that? No, there's not one good. In fact, all have sinned, Romans 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's not one that is good. And the destiny for us, for anyone who remains in sin, the destiny is eternal separation from God. Who is allowed, who has authority to cast that judgment? Only the just judge. You and I are not capable, even as saints, we are not capable of casting correct, godly judgment on our own. So surely if we're not capable of casting correct judgment, then even as a sinner, we shouldn't be able to, we wouldn't be able to cast correct judgment either. Like we must depend on someone who's pure, someone who's holy, someone who can cast a righteous a righteous verdict or judgment. Only the just, righteous judge can cast a correct verdict. See, we want, in our culture, we want a jury. We want to be able to convince others of our goodness in the world today. We want to convince other people, yeah, I may be living under the wrath of God, and I may have sin that's still, that I'm still clothed in, but, but, but look, there is, some, there is some good in me. And so we cast off the Lord's words. We begin de- depending upon our own wisdom, our own judgment. That's not biblical. We can't do that. There is no goodness in us. The only goodness that could ever be in us can only come through Jesus. Us trying to justify our wickedness or any wickedness or any sin in the world does not stand up in a holy heavenly court. The just judge knows everything. He sees all, he knows all, and he has all power. And only he is capable of sentencing sin in a holy way. And this is why our trust is in him and not ourselves. So in any verse in Scripture that we do not understand, we don't look to ourselves for knowledge or an understanding. Instead, we look to to God and say, what are you saying here? And then if you choose to tell me what you're saying here, let me trust in all of your wisdom. What happens to sinners who remain in, who remain in sin? Again, John 3, 36. Sinners who remain in sin can only expect the wrath of God. The mystery here, and this is coming from some great theologians, but the mystery here is how God rules over sinners without himself sinning. That he can continue to rule over sinners and offer righteousness to sinners without himself being a sinner. God can, if he so so desire, do whatever he wants whenever he wants. And the great news is this. There is no person who ever wanted to be saved and are prevented from being saved. Every person who perishes willfully and rejects the knowledge of God will remain in separation or eternal death. This is something that we all have to think through, even in your daily life as a, as a saint, maybe. How are we rejecting the Lord? How are we accepting the Lord? How are we being obedient to Him and submitting our lives to Him? Understanding that He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. That everything belongs to Him, including righteousness that He gives to us through His, through His Son. 
wrestle with that some more this week. But I want you to I want you to get to the point where you where you recognize you are not the just judge. You cannot correctly judge your own life nor the lives of others. We must we must think about we must submit to the only one who is capable of judging justly, judging righteously, judging with holiness, and that is that is God. Verse nine says this. The good news is this: you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Peter doesn't say camp out on that little phrase there at the end of verse 8. He says instead, recognize what Christ has done for you. Recognize what he is doing for you. Recognize your rebirth. Recognize your salvation. Recognize what Christ desires of your life. That he has created you or chosen you or brought you together to be a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to him for his own possession. And then in all this, that you may proclaim or preach the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. When there are two choices at the end of verse 8. There's the choice of honor and vindication for those who believe in Jesus. And there's the choice of stumbling and shame for those who reject and are disobedient to Jesus. And I hope if you haven't, if you haven't said, I want to willfully submit my life to Jesus, that you understand this morning that stumbling and shame and eternal eternal separation from God is what awaits you. But for those who have confessed Christ as Lord and willfully submit their life to Jesus, honor, vindication, and glorification is what awaits us. As royal exiles, so to speak, verse 9 says, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why do we now belong to Jesus? Why has he set us apart? Why is he making us a royal priesthood that we might preach, that we might proclaim the excellencies of yourself? Of, no, of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We love to think, we love to think, especially as great Southern Baptists. We love to take Philippians 4.13 and really change it up. You know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We love to say, God can't do anything without me. Like God is up in heaven saying, man, I'm so thankful for a, a group of people at First Baptist Church in Lovington. Because without them, I could do nothing. There's no way that I could save the world. No. We recognize, as Peter is telling us here, we are not the one who's doing the choosing or the royalty, but placing royalty upon us. We are not the one who's setting apart or creating holiness in us. We are not the one who's purchasing our own lives with our own blood. No, Christ is the one who does that. And in his ownership of us, in his, in his holiness that he's placed upon us, in his priestliness that he's placed in us, He's done all this so that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. You know what darkness always represents in the Bible, right? It represents Hobbes. Or maybe it represents hell, an eternal separation from God. And what does light represent? It's pretty easy. The opposite of that. It represents Jesus. It represents a heavenly place. It represents where Christ is. Revelation 22 says there will, there will no longer be a need in the new heaven and the new earth for a son because of the son. Christ's light will be enough. When Moses was face to face with the Lord, what happened? He walked down the mountain. Cover your face, Moses. Why? Because your face is shining so brightly because of the light because of the glory of God that you had, you had been in his presence. Church, as living stones, as royal exiles, this is the call. 
And you cannot do this on your own. You cannot submit enough power or, or create enough power in your own life to turn on a heavenly light. You don't have enough wind turbines or solar panels or whatever the case may be to be on your own creating this heavenly light. Only in total obedience to Christ. Only in submission to Him. In recognition of what He is and has and is going to do in your life. Then will you be proclaiming the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Three points to finish. Just for fun, I wanted to say that. Three points to finish. This royal exile that Christ has called us to be, this priestly rebirth that's happening in us, you now and I now, if we, are, if we have confessed Christ as Lord, we now become these royal priesthood. No longer needing a mediator, a priestly mediator in between us, because Christ takes that place. First, uh, Paul tells us, tells us that in First Timothy, uh, that, that we no longer need a, a, a earthly mediator. Instead, we have Jesus who stands in between us and God. What were, what, what's the role of a priest? What is your role? If you are a royal priesthood, what is your role this week? Number one, to be an image bearer. Okay, verse 9, you are an image bearer. You are just like the priests of the old, just like in Leviticus, Leviticus chapter uh, 21 and Exodus chapter 16, just like Adam and his role as a, as a priest in the garden. You are an image bearer. You are to represent the image. Not the broken image where sin is reigning, verse 1, but you would put off sin, be reborn, and you are now an image bearer of Christ. You are bearing the image of Jesus. It's almost like, I love what one author says, he, it's like Christ has deputized us. You're not just a delegate. I love this. It says this, a CEO can delegate authority. He can say to his vice president of marketing to perform certain marketing functions. But he can also then go, the CEO can go and deputize, say like a lawyer, to act on his behalf in his name, such that the lawyer can sign his contracts in his absence. What the lawyer does more directly binds, obligates, and impinges upon the reputation of the CEO than what the vice president of marketing does. If you're just a delegate, you're just kind of uh, there to do a little amount of things. But if you have been deputized, you are there representing the name of the one who deputized you, the CEO or the sheriff or the savior or the king. We are ambassadors, deputized, representing the king, acting on behalf of our Savior. So when we show mercy, we don't get the glory. When we show love, it's not about us. When we're showing peace and patience and kindness and goodness and hospitality or, what, or the other things that Christ has called us to do, the goal is not that we would be receiving the glory, but Christ will receive the glory because we are acting or living on his behalf. Paul talks about this in, when he calls us out to be ambassadors, as if the Lord is making his, his appeal to the world through us. The opposite of that is, if we have been deputized, if we are ambassadors, if we are a royal priesthood belonging to the Lord, set apart for the Lord, when we show malice, when we show deceit, when we show hypocrisy, when we show slander, Self and sin receive the glory. And what is the wages of self and sin? Ultimately, death. So who is receiving the glory for our slander? Who is receiving the glory for our deceit, for our malice? Death. And again, we reject the resurrection of Jesus. 
We are in a sense saying, I want to continue to put on sin so that sin may get the glory. Because in this moment, I feel as if sin is a better king than Jesus. It's not the way it should be. Instead, we recognize Christ is the greatest Savior, and only He should get the glory. Verse 10 says this, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So, beloved, I urge you as sojourners, as exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which, which wage war against your soul. So as priests, as royal exiles, as royal priests, we are image bearers. We are to bear the image of Christ. Two, we are to, to be obedient. We are to obey and remain. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. So what are we to obey? What are we to abstain from? To abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So we are to remain in citizenship of the kingdom, recognizing where our home is, and obey what Christ our King has taught us to, or is teaching us to obey. And we are to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which unfortunately are waging war against you and your soul. Ephesians 6, Paul talks about this too. James 4, Romans 7, all talk about this war that's going on inside of us. We are to obey Christ and remain in Him. This is the same thing that the priests were called to do in the Old Testament. And then verse 12 says this, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when you speak against, uh, so when they, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Verse 9, verse 11, and verse 12 give us the three little points there of what a priest is to be doing. An image bearer, I mean, an image bearer of the one who is setting us apart, that we are to be identified with God, and we are a witness to the nations, even as an image bearer of Christ. Number two, that we would obey and remain, that we would be consecrating ourselves to the law of God, protecting every person that we know, everything that we have, every square inch of this world, to teach them to obey and to remain in Christ, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, uh, to be these sojourners or exiles called out from God. And then in verse 12, that we would be kingdom expanders, that we would be, as the priests were even doing, cultivating or growing the righteousness of God among future generations, among all observers, among the world, expanding the kingdom of God. God using us as royal exiles to do that. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that you might get put on stage one day and get an reward. No. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that they will say to you, oh, how great that person is. No. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. A little history here. Nero hated the Christians. And there was a great fire that happened. Who got the blame for that fire? Though the Christians were not the ones who did this, they got the blame for the evil. And so when that happened, when Nero, the emperor, put this into place, he said, let's go and let's burn. As they burned our city, let's go burn all these evildoers. And Peter says, with your life, with your words, proclaim the excellencies of God. Notice that he didn't say, Tell them how you didn't do it. 
preach to them how you're a good person. Preach to them how you've been in house church. Preach to them how, how you, 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 were, you weren't even out that night. Preach to them how you don't have kerosene or matches. Preach to them how you can you know, have an alibi. No, he's saying proclaim the excellencies of God. Proclaim the excellencies of God so that God might receive the glory. Our alibi and judgment is Jesus and the work that he did before the cross as a pure and righteous, completely sinless priest who took his, took your sin and placed it upon his life, his pure life, receiving all the wrath of God in our place, dying for you, and resurrecting from the grave, conquering sin, death, Satan forever. And with that we say, those excellencies are what I am to proclaim. Only Christ and Christ alone. I'm an image bearer of Christ. I'm to obey and remain in Christ. I'm to expand the kingdom of Christ so that the glory of Christ might be shown to the nations. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood if you belong to Jesus, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You belong to him. Why do you belong to him? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once, let me remind you, you were not a people. You had no hope. No alibi could save you. But now you are God's people. See, once you had not received mercy, even though you thought that you had, you had not. But now that you understand the mercy of God, you have received mercy. So, beloved, I urge you, even this week, even today, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh that are at war against your soul. Not just, not just your checkbook. Not just your reputation. But are at war against your soul. And to keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you continue to be patient with us, that you continue to desire to speak to us. And I pray now, God, as we respond to you through singing, God, that you might receive glory even in our response to you. God, we know even as lowly little immature humans, we know of your goodness. We see your faithfulness. God, and we have received your mercy. And I pray this morning, God, that those things, your goodness, your mercy, your forgiveness, might do such a work in our lives, in our hearts, in our souls, that our lives are wrecked, that we're willing to deny self, submit to you in obedience. God, and be willing to proclaim your excellencies to the world. God, may you be glorified this morning because only you are worthy. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's